Welcome everybody. Um, we'll begin with some brief introductions. I'm Joe Tidd and the reason I'm here is primarily because I'm the managing editor of the International Journal Innovation Management, um, which is where the paper was published, um, but also because I've got a more general interest in the interactions between the innovation field and the entrepreneurship discipline, which is something we hope to have time to discuss uh, after we review the paper. So perhaps Alex and Pascal can introduce themselves. Hello, good morning. My name is Alexander Brim. I'm professor of entrepreneurship in technology and digitization, and this chair is endowed by the Daimler Funds in the Stifterverband. And I'm also heading a nice institute here, which is called the Institute of Entrepreneurship and Innovation Science. So already here, Joe, you can see the link between two fields also already mentioned in the name of the institute. Hi, good morning from my side as well. My name is Pascal Henninger. I'm currently working at MAN Energy Solutions. It's uh, in Augsburg. It's a company and I there uh, working as a project manager in the R&D uh, department. It's a company for large bore um, diesel and gas engines with the applications at stationary and marine vessels. Don't know uh, whether everyone knows that not to be mixed up with MAN truck and bus. Um, Besides uh, this employment, I'm doing my um, PhD uh, at the University of Stuttgart at uh, the same institute uh, like um, Alex. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this meeting. And yeah, let's start. Good. Okay. Alex, perhaps you can begin by um, telling us why the paper should be of interest. Yes. Um, the paper has the background that we look uh, more on a company side of uh, this typical entrepreneurship topic of uh, causation and effectuation. And the reason behind this was that established companies start to collaborate even more with startups these days, these years, uh, since they have done in the past. And I see even developments that companies try to imitate uh, mindsets uh, of startups or adopt at least their kind of behavior. So we thought it's also interesting if they do such collaborative work, what is the influence of their decision logics they have? Because a big corporation is very much different to a, a SME or to an entrepreneur. So their decision logics might also mix up at, uh, at some point. So uh, especially as these big companies have uh, different problems, they have very rigorous and slow resources, processes, they are not very flexible, but at the same time, they have a lot of money usually or big resources they can bring in on the, to the table. And for the startups, it's the other way around. So we thought, okay, maybe this is a good starting point to look how established companies can become more effectual in this way. So using this very uh, hands-on uh, approach we know from entrepreneurs. So Alex, building on that, why, why, did, why did you choose to dip into the entrepreneurship literature to explore that? Because if you look at the, um, the sort of more mainstream innovation literature, there are, there are sort of frameworks, concepts that you could have adopted rather than looking into the entrepreneurship discipline. For example, you know, there's the well-established distinction between explore and exploit, the idea that large organizations, particularly large organizations have to be ambidextrous. So they have to look at high uncertainty and also more routine projects. So, I mean, I'm interested to see, to understand why you, you, you looked across disciplines to try to address that question. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, we also looked at this for sure. Also, because all this whole ambidexterity literature is also very much in the R&D departments. We always have the challenge uh, to switch between exploration and exploitation. Uh, but here we were looking more on the decision logics behind this and which factors affect the use of uh, effectuation in this case in established companies. And this is not so much covered, at least not to my knowledge, um, in this whole ambidexterity field, because it's uh, you're more at the end of the day how you invest your time and how you decide for which time investment you go for. We also had some studies in this uh, area in the past, but this is why we have chosen more for this Saraswati uh, thinking. And this is also interesting because I think also the whole area, correct me if, my, if I'm wrong, Joe, of ambidexterity also started around 20 years back to really take off in, in, in literature. So it was also a bit uh, on common ground, so to say, that uh, this whole thinking started uh, in established companies and also in startups. And I think also if you look on the logics, there's also quite some overlap uh, of this ambidexterity discussion uh, topics and uh, on this um, exploitation exploration uh, area. Okay. This is this maybe also due to the fact that these groups are quite separated, right? We have a yeah. entrepreneurship community with conferences and journals, and we have more innovation communities. So, uh, yeah, this may be our next paper, Joe, to discuss this even yeah. in further detail, yeah. how this can work. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Alex. Yeah. No, I, I, I really understand that, uh, particularly the ambidexterity is quite an old literature, and lots of people, in, even in the innovation field, no longer are aware of or are studying that. But I think we'll come back to the explore exploit because I think a lot of your work is relevant to that discussion about how you have different uh, ways of measuring, assessing, and, and decision making between different degrees of uh, uncertainty in projects. So I think there's a there's a, a relationship back to that mainstream um, innovation question about how you manage those two things differently. Uh, I thought that's one of the things that's very powerful for those who for those who are listening to this um, either live or, or subsequently. Um, perhaps you could outline the distinction between the, what you call causation and effectuation, because a lot of people in innovation literature, in my experience, aren't familiar even with those terms. Um, yes, I can maybe give you a brief uh, introduction to, uh, not a lecture, I hope, but a brief introduction to what the topic is about. And uh, I, would, I would like to cite directly um, Mrs. Saraswati, who started this whole area in 2001. And, and she defined it uh, like this, that causation processes take a particular effect, uh, can be an impact or a goal uh, a decision maker pursues, as given and focus on selecting between means, tools, and resources to create that effect. So that's the uh, kind of, a, say, old, old effect, old way to deal with it and the new Part is then this effectuation, and this effectuation processes take a set of means, again, tools and resources like physical, human, organizational tools, as given, and focus on selecting between possible effects. And these effects, again, can be any impact or goal a decision maker pursues that can be created with a set of means. So the starting point is what makes the difference here. Yeah, and that brings me to, I guess, one of the questions that. Um... I find very interesting uh, looking across the two literatures, the innovation, entrepreneurship, the effectuation is very much, as you just said, starting with a set of resources and seeing what you can do with them, rather than being sort of task orientated, a classic sort of strategy approach to enter a market or develop a, a product that you've targeted. Um, and that sort of reminds me of a similar concept, but at a sort of higher organizational level from the innovation literature, and that would be the 
classic resource-based view or dynamic capabilities. And the idea of that, as you well know, is that you, again, you start to evaluate what are the organization's uh, capabilities and resources, and therefore what you could do with those capabilities and resources. So it starts, like you said, Alex, it starts from a different place. It doesn't start from a market analysis of competitors and, and, and customers and say, okay, we all need to go into the Chinese telecoms market um, and get crowding out. It starts from, well, what are we actually pretty good at? What are our unique capabilities? So I'm interested to hear your take on how it's similar or different. So the my understanding of effectuations, it's more the original research was on individual expert entrepreneurs. So I'm interested to understand how that would or would not scale up to the organizational level. And I appreciate you looking at decision-making, but again, that individual decision-maker has to assess not just their own expertise. So the original research on effectuation was an, an individual entrepreneur saying, what am I good at? What are my resources? What's my experience? What are my connections? What can I do? Yeah, that's a starting point. Now, when you scale that up, to the sort of bigger innovation question, larger organizations, one of my questions is, does that scale up? Because that individual decision maker now has to assess a broader range of expertise and resources, not only their own, and how might they do that? So, so to ask a more precise question, <laughs> what do you think the relationship is, if any, between effectuation from entrepreneurship literature and the resource-based view, which is more from the innovation literature? I see them as, I think there are two distinctions. One is this issue of scale, individual versus organizational. Mm -hmm. And the other one, you know, is about agency. And I mean that in the term that, you know, who makes things happen, if you like. So the individual versus the collective. So you can have an individual decision maker in a small startup and they can derive that with the, with the resources. In a large organization, it tends to be more collective, uh, more about influencing others and such like. So there's two questions. You know, the issue, can you scale up effectuation to a, a larger organizational level? And the second one is, what are the relative contributions of individual decision makers? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let, let me start with the first question. I think it's a, a very good um, starting point also to connect these areas as you just outlined. What I think is the big difference in this uh, whole effectuation literature is it's that's a kind of process driven or a stepwise driven approach. So if you look at dynamic capabilities, also resource-based view, it's a more ex post view. You look at it and say, okay, you needed this and that or these kind of resources to achieve such a goal. But I think it's much more difficult to apply them, or at least I'm not aware of it, how you could really use this ex ante also to, 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 to plan something. So how do you know what the right dynamic capabilities you are and how to use them? And here I, I saw um, the, uh, the big opportunity in the effectuation because it's a kind of guide with uh, several steps ahead, which tell you what needs to be done. And this comes, as you say, from an individual level. And that's also the challenge. And I'm not sure if we could solve this, at least a bit in this direction, how you can bring this also to an organizational level. But the big difference is that in the past, also when I was a student, I was, thought, I, I was taught that uh, you have an idea, you write your business plan first, then you acquire people, and then at a later stage, you go out there and meet a customer. And I think this is very much also the common approach in a company, how you still work also on, on new projects. And then to me, this whole mindset change of effectuation is this very early focus on what you are good in, get things done, uh, get out to the customer, to the, don't think about too much about competition, but more about partners you can team up with. 
So to me, it even brings a kind of positive, uh, um, you know, uh, entrepreneurial mindset uh, with it, which I do not see that much in the other more traditional established uh, theories, as you mentioned, with resource-based view or dynamic capabilities. Yeah, which I think, which I think also answers the second question I had about individual agency and decision making, is because one of the challenges in the resource-based view is it's hard in large organizations for any individual, it could be the CTO, CEO, whatever, to really know what those capabilities are, even within you know, a single business unit. So it, it's, it's really hard to apply the resource-based view, particularly as you say ex-ante in advance, whereas almost by definition, effectuation puts the burden on the individual decision-maker to assess what can we actually do and let's do it, yeah? So I think in terms of decision-making, it sort of works and, and, that, and that's a, a sort of big difference between the two approaches. And maybe okay, so we move on to the specific uh, paper and the uh, methods. So perhaps I can ask Pascal about your sort of motivation and rationale for choosing firstly your, your method, which is primarily uh, multiple case studies, and secondly, your choice of sample. Yeah, thanks. Um, we we had the um, approach of a qualitative um, yeah, methodology with the multiple case study because we uh, had a had an area where we wanted to find new ideas, wanted to find new insights, and all the stuff. And um, based on that, we early decided to um, have multiple cases because we wanted to have different views on the um, yeah on the on the same thing, but based on different cultures, based on different processes behind, and all the stuff. So um, for for our example, it was three cases that we um, can say we have three different um, settings, for example. Uh, for every case we use um, more than one interviewee because um, we just wanted to have different views of every company. But then also we um, considered some criteria how we wanted to do the case selection. So we had um, um, the, the two basic criteria uh, was the size of employees and um, on the other side, the industry area. And there we um, didn't want to have any similarity between the cases, but uh, we want to have the variation. So we clearly decided to have different um, sizes of the companies and different industry areas. And then uh, with those three um, companies or cases, we um, yeah, also had one decision to make about, uh, um, yeah, about naming the companies and naming all the interviewees, or uh, let's uh, do it everything anonymous. And there we clearly decided to go for the anonymous part because for us, it was really important that no one feels that they need to overdo anything, that they need to only name the positive aspects of their um, the culture of their organization. But uh, we want to have a real um, yeah, analysis of this company. And we were afraid if, if we name the company afterwards, that they, of course, want to have a, the, the best look at the company they, uh, they can um, provide. Okay. How did you deal with, I think it's good practice when you're doing interviews or actually even mailing questionnaires to have multiple respondents, because once you get beyond the trivial size of organization, even a small startup, you're going to get different responses. But one of the challenges, therefore, is to how do you deal with different responses within the same organizational unit, the same company? So how did you deal with that? Because I'm sure there would have been differences in terms of the responses. 
Yeah, of course. Um, this was one of, um, on the one side, of course, one of our limitations that we couldn't um, get as many opinions of the company as we get, uh, for example, within questionnaire. But on the other side, this allowed us the very in-depth analysis of the um, particular meaning and view of this person. And um, we handled the, the um, problem that we uh, only contact people of the management group so we uh, also tried to um, have compared or yeah, like the same um, management levels in every um, company. And with this approach, we kind of tried to um, overcome this obstacle. But of course, uh, this is one of the limitations uh, regarding the multiple interviews, interviewees, sorry. Yeah, and when you, when you were interviewing, I mean, there's, there's, well, there's many approaches, but, but um, did you ask sort of general questions to try to extract, you know, whether the balance between effectuation and causation in different contexts, or did you also ask for specific examples or projects? Uh, were they just sort of open questions or were they specific to say, well, look, think of a, a recent project and, and apply these contrasts between the effectuation and causation? Yeah. Uh, we had we had definitely open questions because we wanted to have this discussion, this open discussion for new insights, for new ideas. What could be our main research question was um, the, the thing with the factors or obstacles for using effectuation in established companies. And um, th therefore, we wanted to have the open discussion that we can find new examples or we can find new insights of this um, a collaboration, for example, this process works with this culture or this culture is necessary in order to um, get those um, parts of effectuation applied. And um, this was one of our main, main things, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you say the questions were open, but actually, I mean, reading the paper, obviously I'm not privy to the process, but reading the paper, what, and again, I encourage people who haven't yet access to paper to have a look. I mean, one of the reasons it's a good paper is you are very open and explicit about your methods. Um, uh, and I think that's a really good thing, a good practice in terms of helping people understand um, what you did and how you did it and, and what the limitations might be. Uh, but, you know, in, in this particular thing, it was quite grounded and exists in theory, obviously, the effectuation causation sort of axis. So in terms of operationalizing that, you say there are open questions. How do you go about you know, a very, very um, focused, clear conceptual framework, the effectuation causation, yeah. and trying to have an exploratory interview protocol, because they're, they're not quite contradictory, but it's quite a challenge where you have such a, a tight theory, you know, there are five principles, you know, da, 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 and that's quite rare in our areas to have such a, a, a sort of narrow uh, conceptual base. So, so we did, uh, did two things basically. On the one thing, we of course use the theory, the five principles, for example, to, um, to yeah, form the questionnaire we use. So there is also an, um, I think from 2015, from Ms. Verhan the, and some uh, colleagues, there was a questionnaire for a quantitative approach for corporate effectuation. This was of course, one of our basic information we used for this designing our um, semi-structured interview. Um, on the other side, we also um, didn't use any wording about effectuation or causation during the, the conversation and also before the um, interview. We all we handed out some yeah, information uh, interview guidelines, 
but we didn't uh, explicitly say that we wanted to research about effectuation. So we just wanted to have uh, some in, uh, information about the decision-making principles based on the questions we derived from the literature regarding the five principles, regarding other corporate effectuation measurings, and regarding some additional topics like um, how did they handle uncertainty, uh, how did they um, become a little bit flexible, and what is their expertise, of course, the expertise of the interviewee. Okay, and that sort of brings me to the next obvious question is how do you get from um, sort of relatively open interview questions, where as you say, you didn't go into the organization saying we're interested in effectuation and then you get that sort of um, respondent bias quite quickly in that respect, even if they're anonymous uh, respondents, so that's a obviously good practice. But then the second challenge flowing from that is how you get from relatively open-ended questions in an interview through to testing your research questions or hypotheses. And so the, you know, the process you outline quite clearly in your paper is the issue of you know, uh, translation, coding, content analysis. So if you could sort of briefly outline how you got from those relatively open interviews to very clear outcomes in your research through yeah. the yeah, content analysis and translation. Yeah. Of course, th this was one of our main parts um, of the, of the uh, research study. Um, first of all, I didn't know everyone knows, uh, we did all the um, interviews in German. So we had um, the, a little bit of the translation issue, but we um, choose the approach that we, um, yeah, we conducted all the interviews in German. Of course, the transcription was in German. And then also the, um, the coding um, were conducted in the German language. And then we only needed to translate the codes into English. So the interpretation of the, uh, all of the transcription was made in the same uh, language as the codes um, exist afterwards. So this was one of the uh, challenges. On the other side, of course, the big challenge was to um, classify those codes we elaborate from, um, from the interviews with the effectuation or causation approach. This was, of course, the main, um, yeah, the main work, the main effort. And there we um, faced one of the bigger challenge that not every code could be classified based on any literature reference. So um, we needed to decide because we had some new insights, new findings, uh, we needed to decide that some of the codes were based uh, on our interpretation um, classified as effectual or as causational. Of course, we then had uh, some validation process with an, um, a research group validation and uh, some um, other, some external researcher um, we used for the validation reason. But um, this was one of the biggest challenge that not every literature or there wasn't um, a total um, yeah, literature basis for every classification. I'm not sure whether everyone knows the classification process we, we use. Should I talk two sentences about it or? Just, just very briefly, yeah. Okay, so every code we uh, derived from the, in the, from the transcriptions, um, we classified them co the codes as being effectual or being causational. So for example, someone says, um, we don't have enough information data or something. Then we say whether this is more an effectual approach or this is more a causational approach. And uh, there were some easy ones, like um, other example, um, customers were included into the development process. I think we had an example a few minutes ago. 
Uh, of course, based on literature, we can easily say if this is an effectual approach. If you use the customer during the development process and if you include him, then uh, you are more effectual than causational. Um, on the other side, you can derive uh, then um, the, the decision whether this should be an factor or an obstacle uh, based on that. Because we can clearly say this is an factor supporting use of effectuation in established companies if you include the customer into the development process. On the other side, there are also some um, factors which uh, don't belong to the classification, effectuation, or causation, but only to, the, to being a factor or obstacle. For example, um, having a culture where it's allowed to do mistakes. This is something we um, discussed in one of the interviews. And this was a factor of supporting, of course, the effectuation um, approach. But this culture wasn't there in the company. So it wasn't um, the effectual approach of this company, but it was an idea for an factor to use um, the effectuation theory in established company. Yeah, and of course, in established company, there's quite a literature on, you know, the cost of failure, if you like, or experimentation is very different in a startup than it is in established um, organization. So that, that's, uh, that's clear. Can you very briefly then, Pascal, just summarize the main outcomes, the findings of the research, and then where discuss more broadly how we could look at crossovers between the two disciplines. Yeah, of course. And um, the main outcomes of the paper are is, uh, separated or divided into two parts. The first part um, handles the use of effectuation and causation in the um, established company. So rather this, um, um, this company uses more effectual approaches or more causational approaches. Therefore, we just uh, had 30 subcategories where we um, say this subcategory is belongs or is dominated by the effectuation approach, or this uh, subcategory is dominated by the causational approach. And therefore, there was a very surprising um, result because more in, in average, I think seven out of 13 subcategories belongs to a more dominated um, version of effectual approaches. And this was very surprising because, of course, we um, thought that the majority of the subcategories were dominated by the causational approach. Um, however, we think one of the um, limitations, of course, we had is that we only asked um, interviewees in areas of the R&D department or strategic uh, department, so only areas with high uncertainty. And they are much more likely to use effectuation, of course, than for example, in the production, in the HR system, or in the finance department. And the other outcome uh, was, of course, the, the thing about the factors and obstacles for use the effectuation theory in established companies. And um, here we need clearly to say that it's not a method we can only use. It's not an, um, yeah, an, a, a process we need to change, and then we are more effectual. But it's rather an really deeper organizational structure uh, change or a mindset change. Again, like the having, um, having a culture where mistakes are allowed is clearly something we, we, need to, um, yeah, we need to get in the company. Then we have the trial and error strategy, and then we are more effective than um, uh, without this culture. But you can't, you can't say um, tomorrow you can start doing any mistakes and you don't need to be afraid of losing any job or something. On the other side, um, we also have the mission and vision statements of um, established companies, of course. 
these are some uh, things which of course have other advantages, but uh, regarding the effectuation theory, especially if the decision is not made by the CEO, but with, uh, within a department, for example, only the R&D department, then um, the limitation of the mission and vision is there and it's a limitation of the freedom of choice, of course. And every decision you uh, can make or you need to make needs to be within these boundaries. And then you don't have this um, open space, this open decision uh, possibilities like an entrepreneur in any startup has. Okay, thanks, Pascal. And I think that sort of brings us full circle because the things you were talking about, the, the main outcomes, bring us back into basically how you manage innovation in large organizations and, and what role, if any, and clearly there are roles of using uh, lessons from smaller, well, not smaller companies, but startups and the entrepreneurship literature more generally, which brings me to the sort of final question before we open it up to Alex. You know, Alex, do you think there's, there's more scope for using uh, concepts and theories from entrepreneurship um, in the innovation studies and, and vice versa, I guess? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And I think we could already hear this uh, with the answers from Pascal and also what you asked, Joe, uh, that it's not that black white anymore. Like we had it 20, 30 years back that you had a concept and then this was here in this area and there was another concept somewhere else. Because if you look also on uh, established companies research, you also see a lot of lean startup happening, uh, minimal viable products. You see Scrum, uh, which was out of the software domain coming into innovation domain digital innovation. So I think there's also high overlap apparently between all these concepts, you know, and I think this was also why it was um, surprising or but maybe not surprising why we could also find this um, effectual uh, think thinking a lot also in these companies because maybe they also apply already scrum approaches. And then, you know, it's a kind of overlap naturally which, which would occur here. And this is just another proof to me that we need much more interdisciplinary. So even to other disciplines like psychology, I think uh, psychology is anyways the mother domain of innovation entrepreneurship and many others. Um, because it's, uh, when I went to a, a creativity conference recently, I had a, a great colleague from psychology and he was presenting his definition of creativity and creative approaches. And everybody else in the room was like, never heard of. <laughs> and then it was the other way around, we were presenting. And then this guy was sitting there and say, in okay. which world are you living, right? So I think it's a very interesting phenomenon. And uh, I think we lose a lot of potential if we don't, bring all these domains even across um, the, uh, industries then together. Well, I think, I think because you adopted a sort of company first approach using case studies, I think it highlighted that, that you were surprised that roughly half of the subgroups were more about effectuation and causation, even in relatively large companies. And I'm not sure why we should be surprised um, because I have the opposite as well. I, I work with a lot of startups and they're using quite formal innovation processes. So it works both ways. So I think the distinctions are more artifacts, going back to your initial point, Alex, in the introduction, of our sort of, you know, our faculty and journal, of course, except our journal, um, <laughs> journal, faculty and conference silos, you know, that we get more and more specialized. And we look, ironically, when we're talking about, you know, searching innovation and open innovation, ironically, we look less beyond our discipline, however you might define that. And so we get these, these more and more narrow areas. So I think when you start from a sort of practitioner view, you, you see that, that a lot of the distinctions that we make between concepts and, and, and such like are really literally artificial. Mm -hmm. and, and we need to challenge that. And I think 
adopting those more qualitative approaches tend to reveal that. Whereas if you start from a more quantitative approach, you tend to look at previous work and you sort of find what you expect to find. And, and you publish it in a sort of you know, disciplinary journal and you present it at a disciplinary conference and everyone's happy. But I think in terms of the, you know, actually influencing practice and breaking down those, I think they are simply academic silos. I don't think in real life, whether it's a startup or a large organizations, those things are very helpful. And that's why I really like the, uh, the approach of the paper. So perhaps we can sort of naturally then open up to those who are watching this live at least and encourage some questions or comments. I mean, until we are waiting, Joe, for the, for the question, I think this also creates a dilemma for researchers because at the one hand, they might be very open to what we just discussed to say, we, we should bridge these disciplines, uh, these silos even more. But um, on the other hand, from an individual perspective, it's also more difficult to publish. I think well, the International Journal of Innovation Management is a very notable example to be very open for this kind of research. But for many other journals, I would, I would not say that this is the case. So they wanna, I would even say somehow boring research, which fits very much into you know, the line of research of the last 20 years, very much streamlined and focused. And if you combine the different things from different areas, they will always, the innovation journal would say, ah, oh, you should go to entrepreneurship journal and the entrepreneurship journal would say, this fits better into an innovation journal, you know? So I think this is also a dilemma. And again, yes, I appreciate there are big now structural impediments. If you look at the individual career trajectory, then it's almost suicidal to cross disciplines because you don't know where your next job is or where your next publication is going to go and whether you recognize the literature even. So I accept on the individual level, the pressures are to conform to a very narrow discipline. And that's a very good way of getting publications in top journals. Do you remember thing? It was the chartered institute, or one of the chartered institutes of business schools or something. It's a, I think it's a British or American thing, um, published about three months ago, their journal rankings. And um, I can't remember, it's something like there were 17 five-star uh, strategy journals, there were 25-star economics journals and so on. There were about four five-star entrepreneurship journals, four, and there were two innovation five-star journals. Now that's not special pleading, but it's interesting to, to you know, the, the link between perceived quality and narrow disciplinary approaches is it problematic for individual researchers i accept that um, but let's not change the world just now let's open up the questions to uh, specifically about methodology and, and disciplinary boundaries do we have any contributions or questions Well, if not, we can uh, close the discussion, perhaps. Last chance, folks. Okay, if we're gonna close, I'd like to thank Alex and Pascal for that very stimulating debate, both about disciplinary boundaries and also specifically about that paper which crosses those boundaries. And I would strongly encourage people, although it's completely irrational, to um, follow their lead in terms of uh, challenging those boundaries, particularly between innovation and entrepreneurship, which I think at the sort of real life company level uh, simply doesn't exist. Okay, thank you everybody. <laughs>